Good morning again. Before I, well, first of all, thank you, Anandra and June. That was beautiful. That offertory. Thank you, choir, for the beautiful anthem this morning. I, I wanted to. Um, I didn't get to the last time they were here, but and I don't. I don't really want to point them out and embarrass them or anything. But I'm. I'm really thrilled that my mom and dad are here this morning, Gary and Lynn. It's uh, great to have them. I, I didn't learn how to preach the word in seminary. I learned it from my dad long before I knew I was going to be a preacher. <laughs> it's easy to forget when we're reading his letters to the churches that years before this was written, Peter abandoned Jesus. Do you remember that? Denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. The Lord looked at Peter. Do you remember that? When, when Peter denied Jesus the third time, the Lord looked at him. And I doubt Peter ever forgot that look the rest of his life. But there's a beautiful scene in Luke's Gospel just before all that happens when Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus said that to him. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to think of First and Second Peter as being written at least partly because of that command from Jesus. Remember, Peter is writing from prison here. And in chapter 1, verse 14, he said he knew that the end was near. He was about to die. And I love to think about what moved him when he knew he was about to die, this time without recanting, without abandoning, without denying, was the love that he had for the sheep. And like a shepherd who knew that once he died, once he was gone, fierce wolves were going to come in and attack, it was time to strengthen his brothers. It was time to make his brothers and sisters ready for what was to come. That's been the thrust of Second Peter and what brings us to its conclusion this morning. And beloved, it's still... Nothing new. The children of God in this world do not rely on new. We don't rely on cute. We don't rely on relevant. We don't rely on any of those things. The gospel is what's relevant. The gospel is what makes sense of all reality. Just the promises of God, all of which are yes in Christ Jesus and are given to us once and for all in God's Word. Strength comes for the believer by way of recollections and reminders. And in this last chapter, Second Peter chapter 3, scoffers who overlooked the Word of God that His people were charged to remember would threaten the faith and peace of God's people. That will always be the case. But because God is a sovereign and a saving God, we can be at peace even as scoffers threaten our faith. So if you're able, would you stand with me this morning as we read from God's Word? I'm going to read from Second Peter chapter 3 down to verse 13, but we'll cover the whole chapter this morning. Let me read. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, 
following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burned? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Our Father... What we need more than anything is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. And everything from our flesh and the world and the devil are going to work overtime in these next moments, moments to convince us otherwise. So Lord, make my words come like the rain this morning on our souls. Make us ready to hear your word. Speak life, Lord God, to every person in this room. You hold the life and breath of every living thing, young or old, in your hand this morning. Everyone in this church. And God, we need you. I need you. Father, please overshadow me that I might preach. Please open the eyes of every heart that we might hear. And I ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated, everyone. In First and Second Peter... What he tells us is that his desire has been to stir up God's people by way of reminder not to depart from the Word of God, to remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets and the commandment of their Lord and Savior through the apostles. So he calls them back to what has already been made clear. Back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he does this three times in three verses. You see, remind, reminder, recall. And he closes everything out with the same call here at the end of the letter to remind them. Why? Here, because of scoffers. It's vitally important to Peter, which means it was a priority of the Holy Spirit to remind us that we should expect scoffers. We should never assume We should never assume that the culture, by and large, will become Christian. We should never expect that Christianity will be given a place of prominence and power in the culture. That's not how it thrives. That it will be acceptable and people will love it. That cuts against the grain of so much Scripture, it's sad we even have to mention it. What we should expect, what we should be ready for and prepared for, is for people to think our message is absolutely foolish and untenable and expect people to look at us like we're crazy for believing these things. 
We should expect that people will find the Word of God to be irrelevant and offensive and foolish. And the worldly desire that the culture become Christian is fool's gold. And we are setting ourselves up to become so shaken and so unstable by the fact that it isn't and won't become that way that it is going to shake our faith to its very core. Hear the Word of God, church. This isn't home. And it never will be. Stop fighting to make a kingdom not of this world, of this world. Beloved, set your expectations by the word of God. Again, Peter is dying soon. He's going to die. And he knows that Christians will be swayed by the vocal opposition of those on the streets, so to speak. He knows that's going to come. The last days, which are all the days from dawn on Easter Sunday morning, to the day that Jesus returns will be filled with the scoffing of people who, instead of being shaped by God's Word, will follow their own desires. Scoffing at the truth of God's Word. Scoffing at these things. Scoffing at God's promises like like the second coming. We find that 2 Peter arises ultimately from sinful desires in verse 3. Whether those are malevolently sinful or painfully sinful, sinful, but doubt comes from a desire for something that we think the truth won't provide. In verse 4, people will scoff because Jesus hasn't returned yet. And Christians talk about this all the time. They say this all the time, that we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And we are. We believe that. The world just continues on every day as it always has. Where Where is He? You keep saying He's going to come back. Where is He? I thought He promised to return. And what Peter reveals here, I think, shockingly, is that this isn't driven mainly by honest concern that Jesus hasn't returned, but by wishful thinking that He won't. Scoffing is cathartic for the one that wants to do whatever he wants to do and never answer for it. Intent is always prior to content. Always. There's something specific behind scoffing at the whole idea that Jesus is there, scoffing at the whole idea that Jesus is going to return and judge the living and the dead. Aldous Huxley, the well-known agnostic, once confessed, listen to this moment of honesty. Is the universe possessed of value and meaning? I took for granted that there was no meaning. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. NYU philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote very honestly in his book, The Last Word, listen to this statement. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. If I prefer to live and think as I please, whether that comes out in self-righteous effort to save myself through good works, or it comes out by wanting to live with license, makes no difference. Both of those methods of living deny the gospel. So if I want to live and think as I please, I will scoff at the word of God. I will deny the gospel and my desperate need for it. I'm not saying, I don't think Peter is saying that everyone that, that is rejecting God is consciously doing it all the time. 
consciously denying His Word. I am saying that everyone always has a motive that is the reason why they do scoff at it when they finally hear it. People don't want the world to end. We barely want the world to end. And it isn't our home. Imagine if you thought it was. Imagine if you thought this was all there is. Don't ridicule people that are lost. Weep for them. Imagine believing that this was all there was. Something is happening in scoffing like this. That's a willful rejection of the truth. Paul says in Romans 1 that everyone knows deep down inside that there's a day of reckoning coming. Everybody knows that's coming. There's a man going around taking names. He decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There will be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. You know that song. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror of each sip and of each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Everybody knows the man is going to come around. Everybody knows this. But that doesn't change anything doesn't change anything. So notice Peter's approach here in verses 5 through 7. There are no Johnny Cash lyrics from Peter. Right? There's no uh, special showing of the Thief in the Night movies during Sunday night service. Do you remember those? The Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, The Prodigal Planet, The Image of the Beast. Did anybody else see those movies in the 80s? I, I, I was terrified watching those movies. I would have bad dreams and I was terrified because I thought for sure there was, there was going to be the rapture, I was going to miss it, and I was going to have to wear a white robe and get my head cut off because I wouldn't take the mark of the beast, and I was terrified. And do you know what that terror did to deter my sinful flesh? Nothing. Nothing. It became silly. Nothing. Peter's approach to the second coming, look at this, is straightforward and calm. Can you see him holding his hands up to the church to calm them down? Because they're getting so worked up by the scoffing. And he's the one sitting in prison, almost literally with the sword against his neck. And he's calm. The second coming of Jesus is not a club that Peter uses to beat people over the head like a lunatic with. He doesn't concoct some unbiblical superstitious ministry that capitalizes on people's fear of the end. He doesn't read the mark of the beast into the labels on energy, drink cans like the devil is some kind of, you know, diabolical court jester. <laughs> I'll get you. That's more crazy prospector than court jester, I guess. The Scooby-Doo-ish. Sorry, I don't know how a court jester laughs. I, I don't. But he's not getting everybody worked up. You see that? He's not like, <gasps> he's, he's not, he states the doctrine. This is what's going to happen. And then he tells us the implications. Because beloved, again, does that in verse 1, I think verse 8, verse 17. You see, he's calling them back to that. He's saying, listen, I know what people are saying. I know how people scoff. And I know how that starts to wear away at you. But make no mistake. Our God created this world. He brought the curtain up. At the beginning, and because he is the creator, when he's finally had enough, he will pull the curtain down on it too. He will end it in fire by the same word he ended it once before with water. 
And since that's the case, live in light of the fact that He will keep that promise, that this world is not forever. The focus of the believer is not on the details. Rather, if we're listening to God's Word in Second Peter, our focus is on making sure that we believe the Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 10. That's what we're to be diligent about. I love this quote, God's object with the Scriptures is not to present riddles to men, but to present salvation to all people. Scoffers are deliberately overlooking the facts that are plain to them. That's what Paul is saying. They, they know. They intentionally blind themselves to the fact that the same God who created the world is going to return, who is going to destroy the world as we know it. This one. God's objective word is deliberately overlooked. It's ignored. Suppressed is the word that Paul uses. So the problem in the world, don't let it shake you. The problem in the world is not the availability or the unavailability of information. The problem in the world is the corrupted desires of our hearts with which we reject the information that is painfully clear to us. Scoffers are not the only ones, though, who overlook in verse 8, beloved. Scoffers overlook deliberately to ignore the Word of God. The beloved do it because we forget who the God of the Word is. Overlooking is also a danger for us, is what Peter is saying. It's an interesting word the Spirit inspired here, overlook. Right? For us in verse 8, that's who he's, he's talking to the church now, what makes one overlook things? Think about that. Why? What makes you overlook? When do you use that word? Distractions make us overlook things. Getting in a hurry, which usually results from poor planning, makes us overlook things. Not focusing on the main things causes us to overlook things. But here's how the gospel brings us all the way home. To the degree that the state of the world and the words of scoffers have the power to agitate and unsettle us, we will become more and more susceptible to overlooking God's promise to us that Christ has secured for us in the gospel. The more they agitate us, the more we are afraid because of what they're saying, the more we doubt because of what they're saying, the more likely we are to forget to pick up the gospel as we walk out the door. Here's what you and I cannot overlook, Peter says. We cannot forget this. We cannot overlook the fact that God's perspective on time is different than ours. It's verse 8. On whose terms is God slow? In verse 9. It's been forever. Where is he? Forever according to what? Forever according to whom? The person that for whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day? Right? A, right? A, a, a delay of 50 years is like, what, two or three minutes? I don't know the math, but, right? You see how that shakes out? That causes one to scoff. Where, where is he? It's been forever. And it's not, again, I want, it's not always it's not always a sinful desire for more of something that causes one to scoff. Sometimes it's the pain of living in this world and the desire for relief that causes one to scoff at Jesus' return. And I don't want to make light of that. That's very real. Doubt is rational from the perspective of the world. Think about it from their perspective. It's been almost 2,000 years. That's a long time to wait. 
What is God waiting for? Some doubt is not rebellion so that we can do what we want. Some doubt is the result of the onslaught of pain and suffering that can whittle away at people until they question all of it. The question is legitimate. Why hasn't God pulled the curtain down on history yet? What can a good God possibly be waiting for? And man, that can chip away at you. You know, those questions can nag and hurt and mess with us and tear us up. Those questions make sense, at least on the surface. And they look, they whittle away at us indiscriminately. Whether we're in the church or not, questions like that whittle away at us. And it's hard to stand. It's hard to stand when your convictions seem to be at odds with the way things really are. Steady, beloved. Steady. If we take our eyes off of the promise, we'll start to overlook things we can't afford to leave home without. And the truth remains. What is slowness and a delay from our perspective is patient mercy with sinners from God's perspective. The sun doesn't revolve around us, and it's not always easy to remember that. There are other people in the world. There are other people out there, and maybe all of our accounts are settled, and we're in the lifeboat, but there's still people flailing and floating in the water all around us. And the Lord is not like us, verse 8. He's patient toward us, verse 9. And He wants all of us to come and believe the gospel, verse 10. It's interesting here that Peter notes the return of Jesus is going to surprise everyone. He's going to be like a thief, period. It's even going to surprise the people that think their interpretation of the second coming is airtight. It's going to surprise them too. Jesus will come like a thief, period. And with a roar, everything will be made right. Everything. All accounts settled. No red in the ledger. So peace of mind for the believer must come the more we remember what God's patience reveals about who He is. Even the delay points us to the gospel. If we don't remember how merciful He is, we'll forget who He is entirely. And since the world is going to be destroyed by fire, Peter says, then why live for it? Live lives of holiness and godliness instead in verse 11. That is, now we know in the flow of the letter, live lives that are shaped by the promises of God for us in the gospel. Don't get burdened down by trying to find out how to be holy and godly. Remember how the letter started. All that we need for life and godliness has already been given to us through God's promises in the gospel. Our focus is to be on them, to believe them. That's how we become free to love our neighbors instead of trying to concentrate and having to work hard to gain our own things and salvation that God has already granted to us by His grace. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Here in verses 12 through 14, we hear three times, wait, wait, wait. Three times. We're awaiting people. That, that we need to embrace the call to wait. 
when we lose sight of the promise and get antsy, rather than wait patiently, we become people who overlook what is in plain sight. Beloved, we are not waiting for the world to get better so we can tolerate it. We are not waiting for this world to get fixed. That is not what the believer waits for. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth where the effects of the gospel, righteousness, dwell. That's what we are waiting for. And to the degree we find ourselves waiting for any other thing, any other world, we will overlook the promises that keep us secure. It's not a side issue. This is vital. Stop thinking the world is going to change. It will kill you. We'll always need the whole Word of God. You see what Peter's doing? Peter's final appeal here is to the Word of God, back in verse 7. He says the Word did it there, the same Word will do it then. What he implies in the text is that the Word of God is strong enough to keep us from overlooking the promise. What God has said is strong enough to keep us from overlooking the promise. We'll need the whole Word of God our whole lives because it witnesses to the Christ who will return. And then in some way, by our patient waiting, we can hasten the day of His coming. A lot's going on. I don't understand all that. How, how do we hasten the day of His coming? Well, not by forcing it. By waiting. By waiting. It has to be true. We can hasten the day. That's a different approach to the end times, isn't it? We get so excited when we think we figure out stuff about the end times. I don't, 